0: Welcome to Self-Release Songs. My name is David Garrick. Uh, before we hop into the episode, I wanted to say that we apologize. We had to take a couple weeks off due to some fine-tuning and scheduling issues. Even though we're in the middle of a global pandemic, it's still kind of hard for some of the guests we invited to actually schedule due to lots of work or personal issues. And it's all in the past. We're soldiering ahead. Um, Before we start the episode, and I tell you who we have, and it's a great guest, uh, I want to kind of address this whole thing about masks. Uh, You know, wearing a mask is not a political issue. It's a humanity issue. We're all humans. If you care about anyone, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your children, anyone, you have to admit that you would want everyone they come into contact with to have a mask on and for them to have a mask on as well. So you're a real asshole if you don't wear a mask. The truth is we have no idea about this virus. We're learning every day, but as the numbers continue to rise, if you're gonna go out in public, it just makes sense to wear a mask. So we beg you to think of others, not just yourself. Don't be a jerk, wear a mask, For yourself and for everyone else involved. So today on the show, we have a special guest. I'll tell you, we started this podcast because we wanted to kind of show voices, voices of artists who self-release their music, voices of artists who used to self-release their music, voices of artists that are on labels, voices of artists that aren't on labels. Uh, The whole music world is made up of varying voices. And while the name of the podcast is Self-Release Songs, we will always try to have voices that represent not just those who release their own music, but voices across the entire music industry. No matter what you may think about a record label, it's a business. And whether it's small or large, Record labels have always kind of been this mysterious world that you usually have to hire a manager to figure out how to get on one. But the reality of it is, is that if you put some skin in the game, if you put some rubber on the road, you stand a real good chance of lots of people knowing who you are. You stand an even better chance if you reach out to them yourself and pitch whatever your project is. It's been true today. It was true 40 years ago. It's gotten easier because there's a lot more labels. But the reality of it is, is that running a record label is not easy, especially in a time when bands can't tour. If you'll notice, every band that tours has vinyls with them. Because in a lot of ways, because the record store, a lot of record stores have closed for physical records, bands are kind of the distributor. And so when bands can't tour, every record that was scheduled to come out this year, minus a handful that got pushed back, they're all going to come back, come out. and the reason they're going to come out is because they have to start th- the label has to start thinking of next year. So today on the show, we have one of the owners of one of my favorite record labels of late. Uh, Tony Presley of uh, Killed Scales. Killed Scales is a really interesting label. Uh, Tony and his business partner, Seth Wallen are both musicians. Tony was in a band called Real Life Tigers. Uh, Seth was in several bands, including Literature. Um, and both these guys really, really care about the artists, which I think you'll find when you listen to Tony talk about how they approach a band and what they want to do for them. They're all about building a career, and that's something you don't hear a lot of times, that maybe the guy ponying up the money actually cares about what the artist does, even if they're not on their label. They do all kinds of things. They can help a band book a tour. They can facilitate bands because they've spent so much time in the industry as musicians themselves. And their label is so well curated. To kind of run through a handful of their roster. Uh, I was first introduced to them by Buck Meek. You probably know the name Buck Meek if you're a fan of Big Thief because he's their guitarist. And Buck is from Central Texas. He put out a solo record. I heard it, and I thought, wow, this is really great. And if you've ever caught Buck, whether he's in Big Thief or he's playing solo, the music really affects him. And so I like that record so much that I did what I used to do, and I still do on occasion. Actually, I still do a lot. Uh, I said, okay, this is the label. I'm going to start keeping an eye out for everything they put out. The next thing they put out was a band called Sun June and... I just fell in love with their sound. Sun June calls themselves Regret Pop. And when you hear it, that's kind of the best way to describe it. Uh, their lead singer has an amazing voice, and it just meshes so well together. It's such a warming feeling. But they're well beyond those two artists. Twain, Tinsy, The Deer, Will Johnson, uh, Ray Fitzgerald, Renee Reed, Knife in the Water, Alex Dupree, on and on and on, The Shivers. I mean, this is a label that you can tell just by who's on the roster that the people that own it care. And that's a voice I want to talk to. Um, I'll tell you that it is a rarity to find people who are writing the checks really give a shit. About the lives of those they interact and do business with, and I think you'll get that from this interview. So, without further ado, here's Tony Presley of Killed Scales Records. Go
1: ahead and start. So, okay, uh, you're are you from Waco?
2: No, uh uh-uh. uh. Um yeah. Oh my my area code? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I went to high school in this town called Coppers Cove. I wonder what that is. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I moved to Central Texas when I was like fifteen. Because um, I was in my dad was in the army. And uh he was stationed at Fort Hood and then um uh, I moved to Austin when I graduated from high school.
1: Did you go to school there? Or you just kinda like live there.
2: Uh, I just like finished high school. Yeah, I was there for three years, and then uh, I moved to Austin. And uh, oh, did I go to like school in Austin, college? Yeah. Um, I went to school in San Marcos, so I, I lived here and just commuted down there, like you know, three or four days a week. I did the. I, I wanted. Oh, crazy! Yeah, I I very much knew that I wanted to live in Austin, and go to shows like five or six nights a week. So um, I was totally willing to commute for school, but I I wanted to be, I lived in like, I lived in West Campus with a bunch of UT students and, you know, went to shows at Emo's. Yeah, back
1: when you you could live in West Campus, right? It was kind of pricey as shit all of a sudden.
2: Yeah, it got really built up. They built a lot of like, you know, skyscrapers over there.
1: Yeah, there was this weird frat house we used to go to occasionally over in West Campus, and I remember, like, five years ago, someone asked me, hey, where would the go? And I was like, I think it was right there, but it looks like there's condos there now, so it's kind of hard to navigate, because so much of it got built up so quick. Yeah. Um, so, what got you into music? I mean, have you always been into music, or?
2: Um, I mean, I. I... I definitely didn't always want to start a record label or, or plan to do that. Um, you know, I probably like Nirvana was like a band that really got me into um, music with some kind of edge to it. You know, I, yeah. uh, I was raised on like eighties and nineties country music. And, you know, I still love a lot of that stuff and, you know, got into, like, alternative rock bands, like Counting Crows and Jim Blossoms, Goo Dolls. But I would say that, like, you know, Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins were was kind of a, the doorway to, like, that rabbit hole of, like, finding out about bands that, you know, Kurt Cobain would mention in interviews and, like, looking them up on the internet and um, really kind of, like, discovering, like, indie rock and bands that weren't on major labels and finding out about indie labels and stuff like that. And then once I moved to Austin and was able to see small touring bands any night of the week, that kind of really like blossomed into like a passion. And I started playing music and playing in bands and touring a bunch. And uh, like through that, just sort of, you know met a lot of people and made a lot of friends that were also in bands and um worked with a few small labels and um started booking tours for other bands but at some point um a really good friend of mine who had run another label with his ex-partner for a few years um at just you know straight up asked if I wanted to start a new record label with him um With the idea being like, hey, this is something that we want to take really seriously and, you know, we want to be able to kind of establish a legitimate label that can grow alongside artists and, you know, have the infrastructure in place where if a a band is really picking up momentum, we can help them kind of get to the next level.
1: What year was that when y'all started the label?
2: We started the label in 2014. Um, and
1: what don't we, we de- I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: What? Oh, we had, we had decided like the year before to start it, so there was like you know a good amount of planning that went into it ahead of time. You know, I'd say we were probably planned for like six to eight months before we put out our first release, and you know we was, had already kind of lined up our second and third releases, and you know just really wanted to like get all of our ducks in a row before we put something out, not just. Like there was a little bit of a plan behind it in the beginning. <laughs>
1: when did y'all pick the name?
2: Um, the name was already picked out like when Seth came to me with the idea um, he's really obsessed with snakes and with reptiles, and he had that name in his in his head for a while, and um, he's the person who drew the logo and. I, I actually just found this out in another interview that we did together. Um, one of the reasons that he picked that name was he liked the kind of vague musical sound to it, you know, that the word scales can be used to, to talk about music and like snake scales. So, that's cool. Uh, that I was really news, that news to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, that's,
1: a, that's actually a really good idea. So what was the first thing you will put out?
2: The first thing we put out was this band called The Room Outside. Okay. Um, It was their first and and only record so far. And they were based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, But the songwriter in that band is a a really old friend of ours, and she's currently living in Austin now, uh, Carrie Hopper. Okay. And she put out this really incredible solo record in 2006. Um that I still I love that record so much. And um we played in band together for a little while. Um but she moved out to New Mexico and her sister was living there and she started this like power trio with her sister on bass and then they had this like really incredible jazz train uh drummer and they recorded the record uh with Will Courtney. Oh yeah, uh, that's, yeah. Yeah, he produced and engineered the record, and um, but yeah, we we put that out. We were like really huge fans of that record, and the band did a couple U.S. tours um, around the time we put it out. And it got kind of like a desert rock kind of record, um, like really beautiful electric folk kind of stuff.
1: Was it digital only, or was it physical also?
2: Uh, we did a vinyl release. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, we put it out on a, on a 12 inch LP and the band had self-released a CD like shortly before that. Um, and then it's, you know, it's digital as well. I mean, was there like,
1: cause it's kind of weird. This is this thing where I always talk to people that have labels and like, did you like go into it? Like, Hey, we're going to press 5,000. Or were you like more realistic? Like we'll press a hundred. Because I mean, the cost is so high, right, like it's just insane
2: yeah it's it's pretty cost prohibitive um but it's so expensive that um even doing a, a hundred doesn't really make sense when you look at the per unit cost' um, wow. there's just so much stuff you have to pay for before it even gets to the plant, you know you're paying for final mastering, you're paying for lacquers, you know the metalwork, the stampers. Um, so that was one, like, you know, I think we started, we did 500 of that one, um, you know, with the idea that the band was going to be touring a bunch and, you know, we, we had both, we were both at that time in bands that toured a lot too. So we were like, you know, we'll bring, we'll bring label releases on tour with us and we'll have those on the merch table too. And, you know, we'll just really try to get the word out as best we can, um, I mean, even with that release, six years in, you know, we still have copies of that first pressing. Like, we didn't know what we were doing as far as, like, running a record label in, in that sense.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's tough, right? Because, like, to me, I look at it like knowing how rights work and everything. Some labels hang on to rights for a decade. Some of them hang on to them for 30 years. Some of them hang on longer than that. Um the streaming, to me, it like, seems in some ways counterproductive, and in other ways, I'm like, well, but then it puts it in people's ears because streaming is, rad- is what radio used to be. So, and playlists, even though I think playlists are going away because um, there's so many, and it's just too hard to track. Uh, I mean, you said you, all, you figured out, like, what one, two, and three, so what was two and what was three?
2: The second release that we put out was The Shivers, uh, this band from New York. And um, yeah, same deal. Like, um, you know, Steph and I were really good friends with Keith from the band, and we set up shows for The Shivers, we played shows with The Shivers, and uh, it was coming up like that year that we put that record out. um, It was the 10 year anniversary of their first album charade. Um oh, wow. which is was had only existed on C D, you know, and so we really wanted to do a vinyl pressing of that. And so, you know, we paid to have it like remastered. Um, you know, Keith kind of went in and um, he resequenced the album and cut some tracks and so it was, you know, it's a really like tight um really strong album um you know i think we like we pressed like 600 copies of that one um and that i think that came out about four months after the first release so we we put out like a record in june and then we put that out in like october um and then the third record that,
1: that real quick i would assume that sold really well right or it sold pretty well
2: yeah yeah, that has sold, like, that's been, like, one that's just, like, been super consistent. Um, it sold really well when it first came out. And, you know, I think we're down to, like, the last, like, 50 copies right now. Oh, wow. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, we usually sell one or two copies of that a month. Um, wow. That's not bad. And then
1: the, the third one
2: was what? This band from uh, Portland, Oregon called Mandarin Dynasty. Okay. Um and version. yeah, like same deal, like someone we had met through touring. So um at that time that, that pro like that band was just touring a bunch. And um really, really great like kind of indie pop songwriting. Um probably still to this day like the poppiest record we've ever put out. Like, um probably like the most instantly accessible record. Um but yeah, I mean like that that was one like um you know, I think the timing was kinda of weird. Like we had put it out sort of at the tail end of when the band had just done like a ton of touring. Um and they just sort of they took a long break after that and they haven't really done much since then. But uh yeah, we were like really excited to to kind of put out a few albums back to back. And um you know kind of hit the ground running with the idea what's
1: the break-even point on a record for you guys if you don't mind me asking you don't have to actually give me like a physical number but if you're just like oh well, if we sell this many typically or is it different every time
2: yeah it's pretty different every time um it really kind of depends on like what our you know goals and expectations are for the record um you know, some records we might hire like a PR person and, you know, some projects like we might come on board really early and like pay for all of the recording and, you know, pay for the mastering and things like that. And then yeah. other times like an artist has like turns us a finished record, you know, and it's like, well, you know, rather than like paying for the recording, we might look at like a, a licensing deal instead and, and just license the rights to the album for a certain amount of time. Um, and then that kind of allows us to you know put resources elsewhere um, but yeah, I mean, I would say like you can sell like a thousand vinyl copies of something that usually puts us pretty close to a break even point um i mean realistically our our goal with any project nowadays is to is to recoup within like twenty four months eighteen to twenty four months
1: that's not bad. Um, I mean, I yeah. I, than
2: I thought I didn't,
1: it's really that thing where I think most people who are in a band don't understand like, well, okay, this thing, this endeavor is not cheap. Like there's, I hear a lot of times from artists like, Oh, well the labels for I'm making a fortune off the streaming. And I will just laugh because I'm like, there's no way that's right. You know, because if that were the case, no one would put yeah. out a physical product.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, if yeah,
2: I, look... I mean, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I mean, like the, the profit margins on CDs are not amazing, but uh, I mean, it, it's a quantifiable thing. Like, you know, it might cost seven or eight bucks to press a record, but you're able to, you know, the label is able to sell it for twenty bucks through the website, you know, or they're able to sell it to the artist at a wholesale rate of like nine to ten bucks. Um and the artist is making money directly on that. The label is making some money on that, you know, even through distribution and selling it at a record store. The label is able to make three or four dollars on a record, but I think the the amount is, I think it's like forty five hundred um, dollars, like like one million streams on Spotify equals forty five hundred dollars, you know. And right. if a la- label and an artist Splitting that fifty-fifty, then you know, one million streams is essentially like you know twenty-two, twenty-three $2, hundred dollars each.
1: Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I look at y'all's roster now, and I mean, it's like, like it's like this thing where you kind of look at some of the artists, and I'm like, well, because I think y'all have like an amazing roster. I mean, Twain, Buck Meek, Sun June, The Deer, uh, Katie Kirby, Will Johnson. I mean. There's a lot there. It you don't it doesn't seem like you'll have like a an artist that seems out of place. You know, if you listen you listen to every artist in y'all's roster, you'd go, Well, it's kinda of strange because they don't sound the same but then they all kind of fit together. I mean, is there a yeah kind of a formula y'all go for nowadays? Like being this over five years in, do you go, Well, this is what we want from who we pick up?
2: Um that's a good question. Um I mean, it all makes sense to me, like, I, you know, really know what I like and um, I do like recognize like bands that would be a good fit on the roster. Um, and we've definitely like kind of reached out and, and tried to work, you know, we've, we've tried to sign a couple bands that, you know, maybe like are a little bit less field of, of our current roster. Um, at least as far, you know, from where I'm sitting. Someone else might not think that sure. something is, is that far off the mark. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I I do want the label to have a sound, and I want, you know, if someone likes Will Johnson, like, I don't want, you know, like, our goal with a label is, is to build an audience that, that trusts the label's taste, you know, and that might be a, a bit of, like, an antiquated... Goal or concept for the label, Um, but you know, both Seth and I like. We had labels that we followed when we were younger, you know, and kind of pre-internet, pre-Spotify days. um, You know, we we want someone to see the Keel Scales logo in a record store and just trust it. You know, like, okay, I know that I've liked everything else that they've put out. I'll give this a shot, even though I don't know anything about it.
1: No, I'll I'll tell you. So, I discovered the label because of Buck Meek, and I had seen Buck oh. solo, and it's interesting because you know he he's like he's like a little kid that had too much sugar and he can't sit still. He's like one yeah. of the few guys I've seen that is moved by every note.
2: Uh-huh, yeah, I saw he- him
1: live, and he had the record, and I bought one. I was like, oh, I don't know who Killed Scales is, and then I somehow or another something came to me from Sun June and I was like, what is this? It, it probably came from a PR firm or something and I was like, oh, this is this is so good. And then it kind of just spiraled like that. The Twain release, the Deer release. I knew who the Deer was. I'd seen the Deer multiple times and I knew, I think Roger Sellers was in that band for a while. Um, yeah, yeah. York, yeah. And I've known Roger. Roger's a great dude. And so it was kind of like there are some PR firms or some labels that will send me something really terrible. And I'll, I'll send them a really nice email. Like, Hey, please don't send me garbage. But I wouldn't say that to y'all because everything that comes out to y'all is amazing. Like I knew who Will Johnson was and I was shocked. I was like, wow, Will Johnson's still making music, you know, like, um, but then even the newer artists like Tennessee and Katie Kirby and, Renee Reed, and then this latest one y'all sent me, you know, Ray Fitzgerald. It's all, and, you know, knife in the water is always good, but I mean, like, you know, just just so much stuff. where you look at, you go, well, I don't have to worry about this. And yeah, I'm with you. I used to feel that way about multiple labels, Matador, Merge, Discord, yeah. Touch and Go. Touch and Go especially. Touch and Go was that label that I felt like couldn't do wrong. I think they sent me. I saw a record one time. And I probably had two bad Touch and Go quarter stick records, but. You know, they were that that consortium of those two labels, Quarterstick, my God, they had Juno 44. I mean, like, it was Juno mm-hmm.
2: 44.
1: Yeah. Like, they were just everything to me. And so it was kind of, you know, I always felt like if you put out the, the set of ears that's deciding what comes out, typically, if five of ten artists that they have are good, that feels normal. But if eight of, artists they have are good or what at least i like i just figure well everything is good and sometimes i'm just not in the mood to hear something you know um
2: right right
1: so no i would say people could trust you for sure i mean i think you've done a good job you know like i how so like let's kind of roll back how did y'all come into contact with buck i know he lives in the central or is from central texas
2: yeah he's from Wimberley. yeah um And his parents, I think, live in Houston now. Um, So, you know, he definitely comes through Texas a few times a year. Um, I met uh, through Twain, actually. Um, I mean, I'd obviously had seen Big Thief and, you know, had become a fan, but didn't know those folks, really. Um, Like a friend of ours... um, is in a relationship with James, the drummer. So, you know, Seth had seen the band and I had seen the band separately. But, um, yeah, we had started talking to Twain about an album that, that he had that um, they were kind of shopping around a little bit. And um, I had never met Matt from Twain. I would never seen the band live before. So I wanted to actually, you know, be see them play and meet him and talk to him and just kind of you know just get to know him um, before you know putting in an offer on the record so I, I flew up to St. Louis as Twain was opening for for Big Thief on this tour in 2017 and so you know I met Matt and, and got to see Twain play and it just it blew my mind um, but also met Buck uh, that same night and You know, we stayed in touch and and Buck had a a solo record that he had just finished. And, um, you know, he sent me a couple months later and um, I ended up just like really, really falling in love with that record too. And uh, yeah, we like, I remember like trying to figure out if we could put it out, like just seeing if we had the bandwidth or the finances at the time. Um, We were able to make it work. But yeah, I mean, I was really, really impressed with Buck's songwriting. Um, it really... Yes. Too like, if
1: radio was worth a shit nowadays, someone would have found at least two of those songs as hits, like easily. You know, like two of those songs. Yeah. Would yeah,
2: uh, yeah. There's some great, what, I mean, like, Maybe in, in Cannonball or, or, like, you know, if they'd come out in, like, the 90s, would have been, like, you know, 90s college rock hit. Um, yeah. It's,
1: yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a great record. Buck solo stuff, Sun June, both of which, and the deer too, but especially Buck and Sun June. When I play them at Rice, every time somebody calls, hey, is that Buck Meek from Big Teeth? Yeah, he's from Central Texas. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. He's on, you should get his record. It's on killed scales. It's really good. I can give you their web address if you want. <laughs> and then sometimes here, I like go, oh, you know, they just toured with Lucy Dacus and they're like, you know, it's weird because Austin, people that don't live in Austin, that live in Texas, think that Austin has some leg up against Houston and they don't accept most of the artists get, that live there get, they have to leave home. And so,
2: yeah.
1: um, you know, but most of what I hear come out of Austin, you know, is like any other city. You can either take it or leave it. It just so happens that, like, Sun June was a band where I was like, I don't know what, I remember thinking, like, I don't know what Regret Pop is, but I like this. And they kind of just steadily, and then uh, Walker Lukens, who I've known for years, he does that little song confessional, and I've actually done yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, I did one about uh, Scott Byram and I meeting Wesley Willis which is a real thing that oh, wow.
2: happened. And
1: uh, Well, I, Scott had never seen him, and I told him, oh, walk up to him and say rock, because I knew what happened when you did that. And he did it, and Wesley was, you know, he used to wear headphones with Megadeth playing out of, like, a CD player. And he was drawing, and he stood up, and he grabbed Scott by the back of the neck, and he said, say rock. And he's like, rock? He's like, say roll. And he's like, roll? He's like, say rock and roll. And he like, rock and roll, and he headbutted him.
2: And I thought it was hilarious, <laughs> you
1: know. 'Cause I knew that would happen. Um but you know, yeah, Scott's from uh Wimberley also. And like I think what most people don't understand is that what Central Texas has above a lot of places is in Houston or in Dallas or New York or wherever you live, good kind of flows together. Good artists work together, you know, and so the difference between Austin and a lot of cities is there's an eclect- there's a little bit more of an eclectic group that works together, you know. So if you told me that like Buck and Twain work together or like, you know, some of these other artists work together, I could, you could hear it and go, Well that makes sense. You know, um me saying that Roger from Bayonne was in the deer is not BS, it's a real thing, you know, and I know that Roger changed his name because he was thinking of a Roger Seller solo career also um that was more along the lines of what the deer does so um and then again you know he grew up in houston but he lived in up near Wimberley also so um yeah i don't know it's like i i look at the roster and I, I can't really find anything wrong you know like i would say oh you know that's something that if i were running a label i would put out is there like a like y'all have some newer artists, like before we started, we were talking about this Ray Fitzgerald and Renee Reed. Renee Reed is from Lafayette. How did you come into contact with her?
2: Um, kind of the same old story. Yeah. I was touring with my project um, and we got booked on a show together. Well, I think, I played a show and then I, I met the band that she was in at the time. Um, and then like the next time I came through, I think I played with the band that she was in, which is called shrugs. Um, and just became like a huge fan of, of her songwriting. And there's another songwriter in the band, uh, Carolina. And uh, I ended up setting up a few shows for them in Austin and just became friends and, you know, we stayed in touch. Um and Renee's just been, like, writing and recording songs on her own for the the past year or so. And,
1: uh, very interesting. Both those artists, her and – and I, I'm not saying this because we have articles on them coming out this week, but just more because there are two artists right here. I mean, both have very different vocals, but the vocals really stand out for both of them. Yeah. But whereas
2: Ray yeah,
1: has a little bit more um, – Haunting, almost in its beauty. Renee stuff is a little more lo-fi, almost bedroom pop, but not really. It's more kind of folky. Um, but you keep saying songwriting. Is songwriting kind of what it does it for you? Where you go, well, holy crap, the songwriting's amazing. Yeah,
2: I mean that's the focus of the label for sure. Um, if that's not there, it's it's really really hard for me to, to give an album like a close listen. You know, or, or give it, give like a record a second chance. Like um, I get turned off pretty, pretty quickly by like sloppy songwriting or, or lyrics that don't do anything for me. Um. Yeah, I, I I really want that to kind of remain the heart of the label, um, even another, if like the the genres are slightly different. You know.
1: Another artist you have, Katie Kirby is really fascinating to me. Like y'all sent me a song and I was like, Holy shit, this is so good. Like, um, how did she come on your radar?
2: Um so we had uh an intern with a label a couple years ago who um her boyfriend is friends with Katie and it was just sort of like, Hey check this out, you know, like we were sitting in the office and um, Elise played this song for me and I was like, Holy shit, this is this is awesome, you know, and she's like, Oh, well like Katie just put out this this three three song EP on her own, you know. I think she posted it um on Bandcamp and on Spotify. Um but she sent it to me and I just like kept going back to it. I spent a lot of time with it. And it was one of those things where I was like, Man, like it's just a digital release, like there's no physical release like let's you know let's see if we can put out a cassette or something you know and we reached out to katie and started talking to her and we ended up you know putting that ep out on cassette and that was at this point that was like almost two years ago and and she's been you know working on this new album for a while that she just finished and um yeah like that album is incredible her songwriting and and just like her her like sensibilities and like the the choices that she makes with her music just really really blow my mind and I, i don't see any reason why that the record that we're putting out like shouldn't be huge it's just a really really amazing record um but yeah i mean like i i think at this point like every artist that we've worked with every you know, every musician that we, like, put a release out by, like, it's someone that we know or someone that was introduced to us, you know, by a, a friend or someone that we trust, you know.
1: Um, I mean, I, I, I could say without a shadow of a doubt, you can stand behind every, not just everybody we talked to, but talked about, but everybody on the roster. Um, I mean, do you feel that way? Like, there hasn't been a record where you're like... Yeah,
2: there, oh, there, yeah, there. absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I mean... And that's, you know, like as like someone who just like takes everything way too seriously, like that's the concept behind the label too. You know, like I, I, we've turned down plenty of projects that we could have, you know, I I talked about like how it would be nice to recoup on a project within two years, you know, like we've turned down like lots of, um, you know solo records by folks in, like, established bands where I know that, you know, we could have probably, like, made a decent amount of money putting that record out or, you know, maybe broken even in, like, nine months. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I'm, I'm the person that has to listen to the album, you know, 50 times before it ever comes out, and I have to send it to people and, you know, tell them how much I love it. You know, and if you're doing that for something, you're doing that insincerely, and you're trying to convince people to write about or care about an album that you don't really care about, it's going to it's gonna be really obvious. Um, so much easier to champion albums that you're in love with and that you want people to hear and write about. Um, yeah, I mean,
1: I agree with that. If it, yeah I, I mean you, I get so yeah, much you, garbage you know. to me where I'm like, man, I know if I put that photo on Instagram, it's gonna blow up, but this is yeah. terrible, you know, like I just can't do it like it's just not it's just not and that's
2: mind blowing to me, yeah, like if there's one thing i've I've actually realized in running a label is that there's no shortage of good music, like I mean, we get sent so much good music, and like we probably only put out a third of the records that we want to put out, you know? And so that's why it's mind blowing to me that just so much, you know, mediocre or just bad music gets released by these labels. And then, you know, to some extent, like they're trying to convince people to like it and buy it, you know, and, and it, it just, some it gets watered down for sure.
1: Well, there's some things I won't listen to because of how they get sold to me. Um, Anytime it mentions anything about gender or sexuality, I'll listen to it to make sure I'm not wrong. Because I'm like, if this is how you're trying to sell it to me, how good is it? Uh, And I'm not saying this is this female songwriter. I'm saying like this thing I find very vulgar where a PR rep or a label rep is trying to tell me this is this person's sexuality. And it's like, okay, what does it have to do with the music? And I listen to it. Sometimes it's good. And then I hit them up and say, hey, man, I'm gonna write about this, but this is a bullshit way to sell a song or a record, you know. Uh, but no, there's sometimes artists get stuff, and I think, oh, you know, oh, we you know, we run stuff like if a, I guess the the way of doing things now is three singles in the record, or I guess the new one is put out a single, don't mention the record, see how it plays, and then start doing the one, two, three, and then here's the album. But there's some people where I'll run everything, but then I get the record and I'm disappointed. Like, all the singles were great, but the record is not. And I don't have enough time to write bad album reviews. If I wrote a bad album review, it's because I downloaded the press photo thinking, hey, everything they've done has been great. And I get it, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? There's a recent one we ran that I was just so disappointed. And, you know, you think I could put a positive spin on this, but this sounds exactly like something else I've heard. So no. This band should be able to do better than this. Yeah. Um, so no, I feel you a hundred percent on that. I, I think that because there's not this cavalcade of cash behind this, you know, it's just a thing people don't understand. If you own a label, or if you're in a band, or if you own a magazine, or you write for a magazine, you're not sitting on like, you know, money to go buy a new Lamborghini. You're not. And so you have to do it because you love it. You can really only cover or put out what you love. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there, so what's the, uh, so before we get into talking about COVID before the pandemic, like what was y'all's release schedule? Did y'all kind of just do like four or five records a year or. We, like how did
2: y'all map that out? We did. A, we've done a lot the past three years. Um, we actually had, I think we did ten records last year and that really kicked my ass and, and really like you know, strained our, our finances. So the the goal for this year and the goal for next year, um is just like six records. Um to try to do six records a year. Um I think we did ten, eleven, twelve and like albums in like 2019, 2018, 2017. And, you know, some of those were, like, bigger endeavors than others, but I'm um, kind of also in this, like, really great place, but it's a little tricky where, you know, we have these back catalog titles that we want to keep in print. So, um, you know, for some records, we have to go back and do a second pressing or a third pressing. Um so, we might have like our upcoming slate, but we still have some like housekeeping with our back catalog that we we have to do too um, but we we've really approached all of our twenty twenty projects um on a case by case basis um There have been a couple things where we just like after, like looking at it from every angle it really really made sense to just. Push it back to next year uh, yeah you know so. um like in the absence of touring and you know with so many record stores being closed for so long um it's been really challenging you know trying to navigate that too, especially with like emerging artists and artists that haven't really toured much and don't necessarily have an audience in, in cities um That's what I was
1: going to ask. Like the pandemic has not been easy on artists, but it's not been easy on anybody. I mean, except for me because music didn't come out because it was already bookmarked for the year. Pretty much. I've seen some things get pushed back till next year, but uh, I mean, obviously it's a factor, right? Because like y'all press a record and then you get the word out, but I mean, touring is what helps move units. Right. I mean,
2: yeah, for sure. And it's it's been really interesting um you know as this pandemic has kind of gone on uh we've seen a few different trends um kind of emerge and and things that, things are not like static like things are changing week to week um, like the first week we just saw a massive drop in streaming um like people's listening habit, habits just totally changed overnight um, and, and that was something that, you know, it's really hard to look at that first week and not think, like, oh, the sky is falling, like, sure like, we're not going to make any money from streaming anymore, and, you know, it's one of those things, like, as people started working from home and kind of got into, figured out their new routine and things like that, like, that started to tick back up again, um, but, yeah, it was definitely... It took a while to kind of see that play out, and um, yeah, I mean, people have been incredibly supportive of record stores and, and small labels. Um, you know, even outside of these Bandcamp days, which have been just life-changing and amazing. You know, yeah, um, really stepped up with that.
1: I, I've I, I used to do an article series called like Singles Club, which I modeled 100% after the Sun Pop Singles Club, but it was all digital. And, it was oh, yeah, yeah. and the reason I did it was because it was like a discovery system. But I originally went to band camp and begged them to let me do it with them. Cause I said, oh, I, wow. want, I want y'all to make money off this. I don't want these other companies. I want you to do it, but I need something universal. So every week it's the same thing. And they said that that it would violate their terms of service and if they did it for me they'd have to do it for everybody and I respected it. They were the only people that could tell me no and be go, Yeah, you know what, that that makes sense. But they're really wonderful over there. I think they're really trying to be the shining example of what a streaming service and what a music store should be if it's gonna be if it's gonna live.
2: Yeah. Together. Yeah, and they're like actively working towards that. Um, you know like Spotify like they you know after a few weeks of this going on they're like hey you know we'll we'll put a link to your PayPal on your artist page if you want so that you know your listeners can donate directly to you but, but Spotify didn't actually have any skin in the game they didn't offer any money up you know or offer change to the way they do business to you know Actually, help artists who are the ones providing content for their platform. Um, so that was, you know, like that's been really telling to me, just seeing the lengths that Bandcamp is going, going to, to support artists right now. And you know, I I don't think people are going to forget that. Um, no, I,
1: you know, there's a there's a guy in skateboarding named Professor Professor Schmidt. Uh, Paul Schmidt of the New Deal and Schmidt Sticks and he makes skateboards and every time he does something he says well people will vote with their dollar so when people say well y'all link Spotify in the magazine do you personally use it and I'm like no I use Tidal and they're like why I was like Tidal has a pay only model and you can get mastered you can get the master Mm -hmm. copy digital from them Yeah. And uh, it's artist-owned, and they have the highest payout rate. And I, it's the exact same price. They have all the same records, plus some stuff you can't get anywhere else. And they offer different things I don't even pay attention to, like speaking engagement things. And that's cool for the people that like it. I don't care. I just want to be able to type in the artist and find it and listen. Um, and it's the same thing. I have to be able to sleep at night. I don't. I don't hate Spotify. They exist, and I think they're great at what they do. But me personally is different than what the magazine does. The magazine uses Spotify because it's universal. Everybody has a Spotify account. Um, Mm -hmm. But we, if, if we can use Bandcamp, we use it. And sometimes the genre decides it. Like, oh, you know, these kids probably don't even know what Spotify, or they probably don't even have a Spotify account. This is this genre. So yeah, let's go with that. Um, We just want to make it accessible. You know, it's not... Uh, I'll I'll, I'll throw a knock at somebody. You don't have to agree Um, (laughs) because this is going out to the world. But like Amazon is an example. I'll get a link from a label or something. And they're like, hey, this is an Amazon exclusive. It's like, cool, we can't embed this. We can, but everybody that clicks on it will only get 30 seconds of the song. So it's a waste.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, And I want them to be able to hear the whole song. Um, And so, and we tried to figure it out forever. And I just, I just gave up on it. Maybe there's a way to do it. I just don't know, but I'm not. I learned it's enough. Not worth it. figuring out. I'm not going to learn one more thing for a song, because the reality yeah. of it is, if the song is great, it'll end up on other platforms anyway. So, um, well, that's cool. I'm glad that. I mean, I think most people realize good is good, right? Like, I that's how I feel. Like, you know, when they've done these band camp days, I really. There's some records that you know I'm in a position where if I want a record, I'll just email somebody like you and ask for it, and you'll send it to me um small labels I tell them I don't want a physical, just give me a digital um, but there's some records that I own the physical of, and I'll buy and then I'll gift it to somebody, you know, like uh and there's records that are coming out that um. I might not have bought beforehand and I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll do it on this day because the artist gets all the money. So um, yeah, I think Bandcamp really stepped it up. I mean, moving forward, are y'all, so y'all aren't really, I mean, I, I know bands are going to return to touring. I don't know when that'll be, but um, I mean, y'all aren't worried about the future. In other words.
2: um, I mean, I think this is something that we can weather. It's definitely changed um the overall model. Um and we've you know, just sort of had to adjust and, and really if anything it it's caused us to think even more long term about the label, which is, you know, something I've wanted to really focus on the past two or three years is um just building an infrastructure and building a, a business model that's, you know, going to allow us to exist in twenty years, thirty years. Um, because, yeah, I don't want this to be a, a bedroom hobby, you know. I, I want it to be something that I can, like, cut myself a paycheck every month and and know that I'm, like, working a full-time job in trying to get this music out to people and um, doing everything I can. I mean, there's, like, there's something to be said when someone, you know, three or four years later after we put a record out, I was like, man, I just discovered this, you know, this record you guys put out. And I'm like, on one hand, I'm, I'm excited that they found out about it at all. And they discovered it and they're into it. But man, it would have been amazing if, you know, the month that that record came out, they had found out about it, you know? Sure. So, you know, I just want to, I want us to like, be more effective at like, promoting new artists and, and getting, the right ears on stuff, and uh, really, you know, our the, the goal is to establish a career for an artist, you know, and, and kind of have this be the jumping off point. And obviously, right now, specifically, it's a really weird time for that. But uh, I mean, that's still the goal. It's still what I I want to work towards on a daily basis.
1: And where where do y'all have the records pressed? Do y'all press them there in town? Because I know Gold Rush exists. And I would figure, yeah, it's probably cheaper to drive yeah. and pick them up than mail them. So
2: totally, yeah, we we've, we've done a few projects with Gold Rush here in town. Um, our distributor is based in Bloomington, Indiana, and so you know, like regardless, we have to we have to ship a lot of records to them. Um, so that was kind of our thinking at first. With you know, like maybe we'll do all of our. Um, our records here in Austin, and then and then ship them to Indiana. But um, we've actually used quite a few different pressing plants at this point. Um, and yeah, like it just sort of varies project to project, um, either based on like the turnaround time. Or um, there's a plant in New Jersey that uh, our distributor uh, co-owns with oh, cool. Anti Records. Yeah, the secretly group co owns a a pressing plant in New Jersey. So um, we work with them a lot. And then, um, yeah,
1: yeah. No, that's cool. There are times where I hear bands say, yeah, our record got pushed back because somebody made a giant order at, and I'm not going to say the name, I'm sure you know the name, but at this pressing plant. And how can that happen? It's like, and I, I hate to put it in monetary terms, but if somebody ordered 80,000 of a record, I would assume that's going to take top priority. So that's cool. Y'all don't have to go
2: through that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we've definitely, we've worked with a lot of different plants at this point, and And um, it definitely, it's nice to work with a plant that says like, hey, your record's going to be done in 12 weeks. And. You know that that's an accurate time, and that you know your your place in the queue is secured, and that you're not going to get bumped back four or five weeks. Um, so yeah, we've definitely we've experienced that too, and that it can leave a bad taste in your mouth sometimes.
1: Were y'all affected by South by? I mean, I know I know that
2: yeah,
1: everybody yeah also, that to a degree, but...
2: In retrospect, I spent a lot more time and energy kind of trying to pick up the pieces. Um, Like, after the official... After the official festival got canceled, we were still trying to find ways to, you know, kind of set up all these unofficial shows, like, with, like, 10 days, you know, lead time. Um, Because it was still... Really touch and go at that point, like I you know, I don't think it really set in like how bad things were in Italy and in France at that time, um and as it got closer and closer you know, and I was just checking in with people on a daily basis, it really clicked like this is not gonna happen, you know, like this is really unsafe, it's not a good idea um and like the country is going to get locked down. Like, that's, that's what's actually going to happen. And so, yeah, like, in retrospect, I just spent so much time, like, leading up to the official festival and booking all these shows for our artists. Like, I think we we had something like eight or nine artists that were going to be in town for South Live, playing various shows. And, you know, we had an official showcase booked and a couple unofficial parties. And, yeah. Um, that just took up a lot of bandwidth, and you know we lost a little bit of money having to cancel all that stuff. But mostly it was just like, you know, that like we kind of planned some releases around that, and uh, we we're kind of hoping that certain people would be at you know the show, and we could actually like pitch some albums like directly to folks. But that's cool, y'all. I mean, y'all I think
1: y'all weathered the storm. So what do y'all have on tap? There's, what, five months left in the year?
2: Uh, what do y'all have yeah. for the rest of the year? We have a bunch of digital singles that are coming out. Um, and, like, the Ray Fitzgerald EP is, uh, you know, that's going to just be a digital EP for now um same with renee reed that'll be a digital ep out this year um yeah we have a couple things that we haven't announced yet that will be out this year um we have we've kind of been a little bit bu- like behind the curve on like Twain albums um just because the last two records that Twain has released have essentially been like kind of like secret albums that are have been released on like very short notice. So we have a physical release of Adventure which came oh, cool. out digitally uh, in November of last year. That's a great work. Yeah, that record's so beautiful. Um, that's coming out on like final CD and cassette here in a couple months. Um, and he just put out like Twain just put out another new record on June 19th through Bandcamp and um, like that's another one that you know we'll probably plan a physical release around uh, a few months down the road Um, yeah I mean we have another (laughs) another like kind of secret digital album that's coming out uh, in August that we haven't announced yet yeah um, yeah it's been yeah like I said earlier it's just really been a case by case basis and you know we definitely have like half of our 2021 planned out but um, for the 2020 records we've, we've really uh, had to figure out if it makes sense to try to put it out now while there's no touring happening or at least uh, kind of hope that there'll
1: be some touring that can happen next year. I think Hopefully, we'll see like... start to come back. I think I don't know. Everybody down here had a plan and everybody's plan made sense to me. But then you couldn't get people to wear a mask and it just seemed like things came back came roaring back and I don't yeah. know if that gets to come back when people are forced to wear – We they, they have to wear a mask here until August 26th, and I don't know what the state mandate is because that idiot governor of ours can't seem to make up his mind on what he wants to do. So um, I know there's a mandate. Yeah. Where I've just been wearing one since they said wear a mask. So, you know. Um, well, that's cool. It actually so, helps. <laughs> yeah. But I think we'll see touring come back to some degree because I think that some of the artists – Need, like really need the tour for the income. And so uh, there are tours that up until maybe a, two weeks ago, I thought, oh, well, they'll still happen. Uh, you know, but I've seen most things that were people were looking forward to already get rescheduled for next year. Uh, yeah, some of that is in May, but a lot of it's in April and March. So I think we'll see things come back. I'm not super worried about it. It's a break I wouldn't because yeah. I've seen a concert pretty much every night for the last twenty years, for the most part.
2: Yeah, wow. Awesome. And so,
1: yeah, I people thought I was going nuts. I'm like, well, I wouldn't have taken this time off if you know, it, I wasn't forced to. I mean, to tell you yeah. how bad it was, like people were locking down and there were still like local shows. I'm like, I'm going to go check this out at this restaurant. Like literally, like I was just still obsessed, but I started to feel the, the trappings of seeing so many live shows. There's artists I like, and I would go and be bored and just leave, you know, and not stick around to see if it got better. And that only happens when you're kind of burnt out. So, um, but I think' things are yeah,
2: I mean it's definitely a a good reset button, um not a good you know it it is a reset button, but definitely putting a huge strain on the live music industry like i I'm really worried that you know a lot of these small venues won't come back
1: well, it's funny, there was an article that cited a, a bigger name in New York closing, but I thought it was owned by a big Concert entity. I think that the truth is, is that down here, I'm not super worried about anybody minus one, and it's not even in Houston. But other than that, I think most people, um, you know, a lot of these places here at least have kitchens, so they could stay afloat by having to-go food. I know Barracuda in Austin closed. What shocked a lot of people. It didn't shock me because the last couple times I was there it was like, Where's the bartender? You know, like, um, but it's always a shame when any place closes, but especially an independently owned place. Um, but you said when we started that, but, but anyway, I was before I said that, that, that I think everybody's going to be okay. I think that landlords aren't pressing for rent, or maybe they are, but, um, I think as long as people are still open with their minds and open with their pocketbooks, a lot of these places will make it, you know. I'm more concerned about how scheduling is going to work because the moment they open up touring, it's just going to be like every band ever trying to tour at the same time, so.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, I've heard from booking agents that, you know, some of these venues have like 13th and 14th holds, you know, for, for May 2021, so. Yeah, I think it's already, you know, it's it's going to be really, really competitive when touring does happen again. And, um, you know, like the bands that sell tickets are, are going to be the ones that get the shows.
1: Well, I think also um, packages will make more sense. If you think about it, if you will take artists from your roster and we'll take somebody, let's say Angel Olsen is touring and she can take out vagabond who's on none such and she can take out Sun June who's on y'all that makes sense to me as a show that way all three artists get to tour. they get you know opening for her they're going to cover a lot of people every night so hopefully some of the competition gets cut back by packages making more sense you
2: know yeah i mean that would that would be great um yeah. There's just so many unknowns. Still, like, we just like don't really know how long this is going to happen. And, um, there are, you know, are some concerns that, uh, this is going, you know, this is going to put promoters in a position where they can offer less. Um, like they can come down on guarantees where they can only offer door deals. Um, while these venues get back on their feet, um, And, you know, therefore artists are going to be making less than what they were used to making when they were joining last year. So, yeah, there's still so many variables that haven't been addressed yet. Um, I think it'll it'll be, you know, three or four years before things are kind of back in full swing. And, um, yeah, who knows?
1: Yeah, I think... I had heard from an industry executive early in say goodbye to stuff over 3,500. And that made sense to me. I was like, yeah, he wants to go hang out in a basketball arena with a bunch of people that might be sick. Um, Not that you couldn't have it in a smaller space, but it would be less people to worry about. Um, But all of that aside, I mean, when we started, you said you didn't think you'd be a guy that, runs and owns a record label but I mean how do you feel about that decision now like over your six years in so
2: I mean I'm not gonna lie there's, like the first month of, of lockdown I was like what am I you know like what have I done like is this even a viable path um and I, I even before this all happened like I That's a a thought that crosses my mind on a a semi-regular basis. Um, You know, I definitely think, like, of all the times to start a label, like 2004 was probably not the best time to start a label. Um, And we, you know, just kind of slowly had to figure things out on our own. um, As, like, people that weren't Completely all in on like digital streaming platforms. You know, we we we're a little slow to like adopt them and really embrace the digital side of things. And um, yeah, I mean, we were really like we had some like pretty naive goals for the for the label. You know, we were really we wanted to be a vinyl only label and you know really wanted to have a healthy mail order system going and and now we have that six years in but um definitely took a lot of things happening to get here
1: well that's cool i appreciate you taking the time to do this
2: yeah thanks yeah thanks for calling david
0: Self-Release Songs is produced by David Garrick and Closed Captioned. You can stream it on the Closed Captioned website at closedcap.com or you can stream it on all podcast streaming platforms including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and many more. If you'd like, you can also support the podcast at anchor.fm.